This is Shannon in Durham, Chip in Durham, and Erica in Edmonton. And you are listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 93, A View from the Gallery. A.K.A. Bo and Mac are dead. Hush. Hello and welcome to all of our listeners as we continue our march through the final season of Babylon 5. Uh, We are up to a view from the gallery. Before we get started, pointing out that this particular episode, by this time, JMS had been writing exclusively everything since late season two through season three through season four, uh, still writing everything through season five at this point. But this was apparently a story idea from Harlan Ellison, who is a conceptual consultant to the show. And this was a script that JMS was astonished to share that he wrote within a day hmm. as, as he took uh, Ellison's ideas and wrote them. It is the kind of trope of, you know, from the outside looking in, um, which is not uncommon. Uh, Star Trek's done it. Other shows, I'm sure, have done it. And JMS has done this before, although he did it with mainly through the lens of ISN. We've had a couple of episodes with um, taking the reporter's views, uh, that hmm. sort of thing. Uh, We've also seen him do some future jumps in uh, The Deconstruction of Falling Stars, where other people get to share their views on what happened uh, on Babylon 5. So it's not like that it's a brand new trope for him to play with, but taking these two minor characters that are just regular Joes working on the station and following them through a day, that particular idea is not something we've seen before. What did you guys think in rewatching? The fact that you mentioned Harlan Ellison's name, that really impacted the way that I felt about it in, at first, because this this originally aired, or at least I originally watched it, like kind of at the height of my obsession with everything remotely related to Harlan Ellison. Like, <laughs> okay. I had, yeah, like all of his books and like the, watched A Boy and His Dog multiple times, even though I really don't like that movie. Um, <laughs> just like, so there was, there was, there was, a, there were a lot of preconceived notions there. So when I saw his name come up as, you know, story credit to him, which also not surprising that he gets a story credit because he is not the kind of guy to uh, to let it slide if he gives you an idea and you do not give him proper credit. He's the only person to have ever gotten half a Hugo because he complained so much. <laughs> um, so uh, I was just like, I, I convinced myself that I absolutely loved this episode the first time I saw it. And I think a lot of that was simply because his name was on the front of it. Um, but I will I will say, you know what? It's fine. I think this mm-hmm. episode's fine. What about you, Chip? It's okay. <laughs> After I watched this, I actually went straight back to Star Trek The Next Generation to watch their take on this kind of a story, which is an episode called Lower Decks. It appeared in the seventh season when they were just sort of coming towards the end of the run and they saw that this is an opportunity to break out of their format or their formula a little bit. And that's an episode that involves Ensigns and Lower Decks characters. You know, they've got a story arc and they have things to do that intersect with the main cast throughout the episode. They have a story. Mac and Bo, these are a couple of characters and the actors who play them. You know, they've got a certain amount of charisma and uh, chemistry and, you know, they're interesting. But their entire function in this episode is to comment on the characters of Babylon 5, the show Babylon 5, 
Mm -hmm. and the fandom conversation about Babylon 5. And as I was getting ready to watch this, the voice of Stephen Shapansky was loud in my skull, (laughs) saying, I hate self-indulgent episodes. As I got through this episode, Stephen was still whispering in my ear. I was really, really sensitive to the parts of this episode that are overplayed and are self-indulgent. In the end, I came around to feel like this was okay. This was okay. This was an interesting experiment. There was some fascinating stuff that happened with some of the other characters. Uh, There were some good moments. But I think that this is... Stephen hated Deconstruction of Falling Stars. I really, really, really like it. But I would apply the Stephen rule to this episode to a certain extent. (laughs) Which is kind of hilarious because you know what? He liked it. He loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't wouldn't say he loved it. Um, He was just, it ended and he was like, well, it wasn't that cute. You know, offset by the fact that that there's a horrible battle where lots of people died. But yeah, he liked Mm -hmm. it enough. Um, And and. I, I did talk about how it was self-indulgent. The things that I like the least about it are the self-indulgence, which we'll get into. But yeah. he said that, you know what, when it comes down to it, he's like, I think I like this kind of self-indulgence a lot better than the kind of self-indulgence we saw in in that one episode. He didn't even remember the title. <laughs> but yeah, he, he, he likes this. He thought this was at least cute and it was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think ultimately I would come down um, certainly not as bad as some received fan wisdom has th- this episode has a reputation uh, for being a hated episode, and it, it's not that bad. It doesn't always stick the landing, but it's not that bad. Yeah, JMS takes the opportunity to play with things and to insert things, but overall, I think he's doing it more out of a sense of humor than a deliberate commentary, uh, except for maybe one thing I can think of, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. Yeah, um, I think I know what okay. you're thinking about. Okay. So as we get into this, uh, what you need to know if you, for whatever reason, um, have never watched Babylon 5 before, and this is your first episode. Babylon 5 is a space station that takes a lot of time, effort, and money to maintain. Captain Elizabeth Lockley is the third to command the station, succeeding John Sheridan after he was chosen to be president of the new Interstellar Alliance. And in this episode, the station is preparing for a scouting attack from a new hostile race, thanks to the warning from the Gaim, members of the Alliance. As the station weathers and then repels the attack, we follow two maintenance workers through the crisis and see most of the show's major characters along the way. And that is a view from the gallery. So to start off with, there is a plot. There is, it's not just these two guys wandering around and commenting all the time. There is a plot going on here. Uh, where we have this unknown new hostile alien race uh, swarming in. We get things like Lockley and Sheridan uh, and Delenn trying to work their way through their new dynamic in the face of this first really big crisis uh, coming from the outside. Um, And this is, frankly, I think the first attack on the station itself since Zahadum, if I remember correctly, with the shadows Mm -hmm. going after them, uh, because the Earth Civil War forces... Uh, that was back in Severed Dreams was the last time they tried to attack Babylon 5 directly. Um, so it's been a while. Yeah, it really has. And, and it's really mm-hmm. different. It's a race that we've never seen before, never heard of before. And right. yet they're powerful enough that uh, they're a legitimate threat to the station. Uh, mm-hmm. I do like the little mm-hmm. nod to continuity that the bulk of the White Star fleet is still dealing still... with the Enfili homeworld from previous right. episode. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of continuity callbacks in this episode. Oh, yeah. 
say on, my dear, say on. <laughs> no, that, that that that's coming in a little bit. Okay. Uh, you can finish your thought. I'll be good. Well, invoking Star Trek again, it feels kind of episodic. I remember mm-hmm. watching Next Generation when they introduced the Cardassians, and all of a sudden, this race that we've never seen before in any kind of uh, Star Trek format whatsoever... There's actually a history of a Federation war with the Cardassians, and Colm Meany's character, Chief O'Brien, has some emotional battle scarring from this thing, you know, just sort of coming out of the blue. These aliens, right out of the blue. We get a little bit of backstory Mm -hmm. on them from the game, but a force this big and powerful should have been involved in the Shadow War or something like Mm, that. It's, you know... That's my that's that's one of my sort of bugaboos about this one is the fact that, yeah, there's just they they seem paper thin and very convenient. Like it's somebody we've never heard about before. And yet they're that tough. And also the fact that then, you know, Captain Lockley is just like, you know, we need to turn them back so that they just go on and hurt somebody else. Like that that doesn't I mean, maybe that's supposed to be, you know, showing us how she's different in character from from Sheridan. But, you know, Sheridan still exists and he doesn't say anything about that either. It's just it it all sort of rang a bit of a sour note note with me but you know as far as like you know you need a backdrop for the for the conceit of this story mm-hmm. and sure if if we're going to just focus on you know I, i'm happy to just say okay the idea of this story is not that this is that's the background yeah. so whatever I'll, mm-hmm. I'll i'll just sort of let that go but it it, it, it is a little off it could have yeah. been raiders except for the fact that you know they've got to be powerful enough that they can breach the station and stuff mm-hmm yeah, this this is the one biggest thing that made it really feel kind of like a season one episode again, that, you know, yeah. closed off bottle episode. And frankly, this is a bottle episode and dealing with an immediate threat within that episode. No, it's a it's a hefty threat. And mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's, a pretty one. The CGI is actually really great. in this. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in the space of this. 42 minute episode you do have a lot of uh you know real crisis on the station refugee situation and uh casualties and things like that in the space of this episode it is treated very seriously mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's one of the things that i was enjoying was how they were sort of calling back to things that they had done before in preparation uh, for situations like this, um, how the roles of various people, what does Dr. Franklin do to get ready for an influx in med lab? Um, what do other station personnel have to do to be ready? Uh, things like that. Um, seeing Lockley in a military situation, you know, seeing how she takes command of, uh, of an active conflict, uh, those kinds of things appealed. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the things is the, the strength of this episode is seeing all of these characters doing what JMS wanted to do, seeing all of these characters from another viewpoint, you know, seeing, uh, you know, again, Lockley, you know, being so focused, apparently, apparently Tracy, it was Tracy Scoggins idea to just, you know, look, she just got woken out of bed. She's got to go straight to the station. She's just going to yank her hair, hair back in a ponytail. She's not going to do anything with it. Um, ah, cool. Yeah. And I know, then I she noticed that. <laughs> well, and then she saw just how unflattering that is of a style so she never did it again ah, yeah. spoiler for the rest of the season you, you never see her wear a ponytail again yeah sorry i've ruined that's it. okay i'm all right with that spoiler because <laughs> i i agree with her it was it was uh it was not flattering but it was striking i i you know 
that's that makes perfect sense. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. she's getting up. You know, we saw Sheridan, you know, woken up in the middle of the night a gazillion times and he doesn't have to do anything with his hair. And it's even mm-hmm. happened to Ivanova, but she pretty yeah. much pulled her back hair back anyway. And that looked good on her. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, seeing that, seeing her interactions with uh, Lieutenant Corwin, who gets uh, a lot of face time in this episode. Uh, and, and other things that, you know, show that the taking the opportunity, um, for, you know, they run into Sheridan and then, you know, Mac and Bo start trading anecdotes, rumors, and their opinions. And we learn what we kind of suspected that, you know, as far as most of the Babylon five staff and station personnel, most everybody seems to think Sheridan was worth supporting and is still worth supporting. Yep. And I... I, I have such mixed feelings about this episode because I, I actually quite like the conceit. And, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, I really like Harlan Ellison's story idea, I think, a lot more than I like JMS's realization of that particular mm-hmm. story idea. Uh, Stephen, actually, Stephen liked the two actors. He said that, uh, that you know, they're they're charming enough to you know to, to get along with it. And, you know, they, it was fine. Whereas I just I didn't think that they were... They weren't bad. They were not our usual, you know, terrible Babylon 5 guest actors, but they weren't they they just did not feel like actors or performances at least from these actors that could carry an episode of a show because every time we saw one of our main cast, it just it was like we were watching a different show all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, you know, they yeah. just they didn't seem natural enough about it. It was it, it was very sort of like they it felt artificial and forced, almost like a caricature or like cartoon versions of people that would be on Babylon five. To, just... to some extent, yeah. I, I agree mm-hmm. with that. I think there were moments, especially uh Lawrence Lejean playing Bo, there were moments that he nailed it. Yes. Um yep. but yeah and Raymond O'Connor, I mean both of them are veteran actors. They had credits beforehand. They're still both active actors today in all kinds of things um yeah but they're character actors yeah which i think is the problem i don't think you should put a character you should have put character actors or at least into into these roles i think they didn't feel enough like real people to me and also the words that they were saying and this gets to sort of the jms yeah. bit of it is is a, a lot of it was fine and like their 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 sort of opinions and viewpoints were fine except that it just you know, we've talked before about JMS, you know, getting on his soapbox or just, you know, feeling like what characters are saying is sort of just him, you know, mm-hmm. putting his feelings out on the screen, which is a thing that I will almost always defend because, hey, he created the show. That's fine. But here it just feels like it's such a heightened version of that, that I it kept pulling me out of it kept pulling me out of the story. It's like, yes, clearly you are in love with Dylan. Yes. You think <laughs> yeah. Sheridan. You think Sheridan is the greatest. It was just it was a little it was a little on the nose for me, I think. It's- it's, yeah. it's Greek Little chorus on. stuff, and and mm-hmm. and it's really not necessary. Most of the people watching this, even back back then on that first year on TNT, most people are not new to Babylon Five. It's telling the audience something they already know, and having Mac and Bo sort of commenting on this stuff, it is not new. I keep coming back to some getting this sort of aren't we clever about ourselves kind of feel that um that i'm surprised that steven didn't uh share with me this time around i'm the grump this time <laughs> that happens to happen once in a while well you yeah, know what I, I think i think part of the the reason that it was better for steven than it was for us is that 
Stephen has not been allowed to read the Lurker's Guide. Stephen has not been allowed to <laughs> interact and engage with, you know, the fandom that existed at the time. We know all of the stuff that, that JMS has, has said and thought over the years. Stephen has none of that. He doesn't have any of that context. So for him, those characters aren't necessarily, you know, it's not JMS speaking through two different mouths on screen. For him, it's just, oh, look at these two, you know, cute, you know, relatively friendly characters wandering around and, and doing their thing. So I think part of the problem is we actually know too much for our own goods. Yeah, I can see that. For me, some of the stuff you all were saying about when Bo and Mac sort of feel real versus feeling like commentators. And you, there's definitely mm-hmm. the, sort of this divide, I think. And sometimes I think JMS is trying to soften that with uh, banter. And the banter doesn't always land. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Um, there are times when it works. There are times when it doesn't work quite so well, you know, but overall, but bless the heart, the actors were trying. Um, JMS mm-hmm. describes on the Lurker's Guide how uh, Raymond O'Connor and Lawrence LeJohn, like during off hours, would like actually go off by themselves and rehearse and practice together so that, you know, there was going to be no hesitation and no gaps, no pauses, that they were going to do their best to present these two characters that have been working together for years and know each other really well. So, you know, bless their hearts. They were trying very hard. Yeah, I I just think the effort shows up too much on the screen. Yeah, it does. It does look forced and it does look like they're trying. Like, I, you know, rather than going off together and just practicing on their own, I kind of wish that they had just like gone out for beers and just chatted Mm -hmm. and like just been people together, maybe. And maybe they did that, too. And it still wasn't enough. I I don't know. So basically, Bo and Mac take us on a tour of the station. Uh, We get to see the hub with Captain Lockley. We get to see glimpses of Sheraton's instinct of still staying where he thinks he's needed, even though he's not a soldier anymore. He is not the captain anymore. He is not in the military anymore. But, you know, darn it, he's going to stay on the station and try to get to Len to leave the station. And we see <sighs> how well that goes. <laughs> oh, my God. That just uh. made me so mad. Uh. Why? Yeah. Why does he think he should be able to stay and she has to go? Like, I just she's his wife now. Both, both <laughs> of them. Both of them. Yeah. Both of them I are know. not being intelligent characters here in I this. Yeah, I know. You're the freaking <laughs> president of an interstellar alliance. You get on the boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. And that, that's just... It's a sentimental episode in that way. And I'm a president now. I should be there with the people, you know, that sort of thing. It's a very idealized approach to politics that just doesn't work. And I don't think it even worked back in the the mid-90s. Yeah. I don't know if JMS was trying to show that it's going to take several instances like these for Sheridan and Nolan to finally start thinking of themselves as politicians instead of, you know, leaders of a war effort. I don't know. But yeah, at, at this point, yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely not thinking uh, about the bigger picture and the roles they play now. Even the dialogue that to to outline that. So, you know, I did. I God, I love Mira Ferland so much. Mm-hmm. Her her scenes with uh with with Mac and Bo when she's you know explaining to them you know what do you think would happen if mm-hmm. the the controls yeah. were accidentally damaged that was that was delightful. But when she is explaining about why she's saying you know what would you do if if you had to be like floating out there and watching everything that you loved and worked and worked so hard to build crumble before you or burn in flames or whatever. But Babylon Five is not what she worked so hard to build. I mean, yes, she she also, of course, had a hand in that because she's Mimbari and the Mimbari were, were 
mm-hmm. uh, in part of that. But the thing that she and Sheridan have worked so hard to build is the alliance. Right. And I don't think that necessarily the alliance falls if Babylon 5 does. I mean, maybe maybe that's a thing that would happen. But but the structure itself is not, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's greater. It's greater than that. And and if she and Sheridan, like as we were saying before, if they both die with it, then maybe the alliance does fall. Who knows? So yeah. mm, that just that was frustrating. Yeah, I think the episode did a better job uh, with some others. Um, I really liked the bits with Franklin. Yes. Personally. Yeah. It's like, you know, Richard Biggs always delivers uh, whenever he's given the chance to. Uh, and this is a really it, it's not very long, but it's a really meaty chunk of his backstory. Yeah, and it's really good for Lawrence Lejean as Bo. Uh, this mm-hmm. is the this mm-hmm. is the one moment in the episode I think when Bo is a character and has a little bit of a character arc as opposed to being a commentator, because it is not for those of us who are used to the way that Franklin thinks and all this stuff. It's not real flattering uh, a look at Bo when he says, "Why would yeah. why would you deal with the right. alien casualties here?" Yeah, um, and did you notice how he kept mispronouncing alien names? I'm trying to think back if then later on and, uh, you know, he, he, he calls the Centauri the Centauri and mm-hmm. uh, he says, like, you know, he mispronounces Dilgar and it, it sounded off. That's right. Um, I don't remember if he mentioned any alien races later on, if it got better or not. Yeah, but that's a that that's a good moment there. Um, I, I do like that. I do like that it tracks with what we know of uh, Franklin's father. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the relationship. It totally matches. And the parallel for me, that leaped out at me this time, the parallel, you know, Franklin telling Bo that, you know, that Dilgar doctor got shot for being a traitor. And that made me think of Stephen being arrested when he wouldn't give um, the military uh, his records on the Mimbari. Mm. So, you know, he's lived through that same situation to an extent. You know, he, he's, he's experienced a similar situation as the doctor that inspired him. That's when JMS is really on point about politics and mm-hmm. uh, culture and all that other stuff. You know, the what happened to that doctor? He got shot as a traitor. You know, that's that sort of hard-edged look at reality that I think JMS is better at than when he is being Sheridan Man of the People. Totally. Yeah. I also think it's a good moment uh, with Jakar and Londo. Uh, yeah, where we get to hear both of, you know, sort of their childhoods and what how their childhoods have shaped them uh, and their out what their current outlooks on life are as a result. I think part of the reason I like that scene so much is that Mac and Bo aren't really part of it. Like they happen to be in the same room, but they're not mm-hmm. even on screen for most of it. It's just these two characters. Although I do have to say at the beginning, I was like, why are Londo and Jakar the ambassadors like in this rando, you know, shelter? They, there's there's no other ambassadors around. I feel like they, they would be someplace more secure and fancier. So it was just another sort of this is a thing that we have to do to get these characters in the right spot to be seen by these people. So it, it felt as flimsy to me as the uh, as the the unnamed race that shows up to, yeah. to kill everybody in the background. They, they were having a drink in, in a bar, and that was the closest shelter. I, there I you don't know. know. I'll take it. I'll do that one. I love how direct, without histrionics, Jakar is in mm-hmm. describing what Londo's people did to him. Mm-hmm. But But it's not that he's forgiven or that he is not bitter about what happened, but... 
he's not taking it out on Londo. He's making a very, very strong point. And mm-hmm. that's that that is well played. That and uh Londo's reaction to it. <gasps> yes. It's v- so well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we, we are paying a price to get scenes like this because of the artificial structure of the episode, what it what it takes to get them in that room, having that scene where Bo and Matt can watch them. Mm-hmm. And of course, they find a way to um, have, you know, the, the quick interchange with uh, Garibaldi and Lockley, you know, <laughs> seeing how Garibaldi is dealing with the new captain, seeing how the new captain is dealing with this guy who doesn't really fall under her remit in any way. Not um, well. Yeah. No, I felt like that she was being kind of unreasonable. Like, why would you? Th- I mean, I don't know. Well, again, this is the first time we're seeing her in this kind of situation. So we mm-hmm. don't know if this is the way she reacts every time, you know, not only kicking herself for not thinking of these things, but kicking the other people that she thinks should have been responsible. We don't know. We mm-hmm. th- we haven't seen it yet. But, you know, and Garibaldi giving it right back to her. You know, how how am I supposed to know every single thing? You know, I don't know for sure. And then, you know, she leaves and he just sort of nods and goes like, yeah, the, we're, we're not making it out of this one. That was very Garibaldi. And of course, they, they wind up uh, finding the telepaths. So mm-hmm. um, Yeah, Chip, earlier you said that uh, that the scene with Dr. Franklin is where you thought Bo was a, a real character. And actually, I thought it was here because I thought his, I, I mean, the, the Dr. Franklin scene was great too, but his reaction to being in the, the fighter, you know, out with everybody, like mm-hmm. re- regardless of how you feel about Byron or why he did it in the first place. The fact that he did and that Bo gets to sort of experience this. And at first he's like, what the heck is happening? Where am I? And then he was like, no, you know, this is this is the thing that I would actually do want to do. And, you know, he, you can see that he he switches from from fear to determination. And then afterwards, his reaction, uh, he doesn't actually say thank you, but his face very clearly says thank you. Like it was it was not an empty boast that he would like to be out there. This is that's that's actually a thing that's true to the core of this character and it you know that i think that added a little bit to his his character arc because yeah. at the end you get mac asking you know do you do you ever want to be out there which i felt like is a weird thing to ask since he had like they had already covered that just like an hour ago mm-hmm. but whatever yeah. yeah and uh and he learns something from it uh when we see mm-hmm. him at the end when they have that conversation with him and he relives what byron projected mm-hmm. into him Blow seems to have different opinions about what he saw. He sees the complexity of it, and that's mm-hmm. really neat, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not super flattering for Mac when he pretty much disparages Brown Sector and mm-hmm. uh, why yeah. his fellow uh, maintenance employees finding better places to be and then sort of realizing that he's put his foot in his mouth in front of these telepaths who are living there. Um, mm-hmm. That's... that's <laughs> I. Not Again, cool, I I appreciate it when uh, I appreciate it when they are allowed to be real characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can't quite make up my mind as far as you know Byron's. Uh, the, the, a lot of what Byron's speech seemed uh, to, seemed to border on pretentious at times. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've seen him skate towards being pretentious so far once or twice, but this you know seemed like yeah. you know here he's got this you know audience and it's going to entertain him for a few minutes to to perform for this audience. Um, I didn't think he started feeling real until he started like he did with Lita. Uh, he does with Bo. Does this matter to you? 
Mm-hmm. And of course, he can tell, you know, that yes, it does matter to him. And therefore, he shows Bo, this is what it feels like to be out there. So, you know, that bit I found kind of fascinating. I was a little annoyed that their reaction to the unknown alien finding them was to basically turn it around and send it back in the other direction instead of maybe taking it down. I mean, you guys <laughs> probably could have done that. There were enough of you. But <sighs> I agree that he was pretentious, but I feel like he just was viewing everything that was happening around him with distaste. Like, mm-hmm. this is what this is what mundanes do. They fight against each other. So we're just going to sit here and we're just going to let these this, you know, the mundane humans and the mundane whatever they are, uh, you know, red helmeted warriors f- just just got fight a, it out I, amongst I, themselves. I'm sorry. I got an ice warrior vibe from them. Wrong color, but. <laughs> T- totally. I, I was thinking a little Santarin, like a little bit of the Santarin helmet, just skinnier. So this is your yeah. obligatory Doctor Who reference. Yep. <laughs> Check the box. <laughs> but yeah, like he just didn't, he, he just was so unimpressed with all of this stuff that's going on. Like he's just like, I need to get my people out of here. We need to find a colony for ourselves where, where, where this kind of crap isn't going to happen. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, like the pretension of, man, he really loves Hamlet because this Doesn't is the second time we've, the second time we've seen him quoting Hamlet. And like, I love Hamlet, but I don't know. I don't go around quoting it quite that often, especially in sequences like like that like where i'm actually holding the head or at least the helmet of a of a real dead person and like just i don't know it feels like it's in poor taste byron <laughs> of course we mentioned it already just how much of a self-aware commentary this story winds up being at times one very big example and this was like the one example that jms said yes i did this because i was tired of the fans blowing stories out of the water but he references what happens to claudia christian of uh, the character of anova uh Bo says you know what actually happened in story and uh mac you know goes on a spiel that parallels the actress the position of the actress some p- fans at the time took that as you know what are you doing slamming claudia christian and jms is like no i'm slamming the fans that won't shut up about it she made a decision we had to roll with it Ah, so. See, yeah. And Stephen, not knowing that that was JMS's uh, intent or or even me remembering that, Stephen mm-hmm. was just like, wow. Like he, he did think that that was a dig at Claudia Christian. <laughs> it was yep. really meta. Hmm. Very meta, not. but not aimed at her. Of course, JMS also takes the opportunity to throw in some explanations for like common complaints about plot holes. He explains why they can't just turn off the jump gate to keep aliens from coming in. <laughs> I have to say, I love that. Like, yeah. That's the kind of, that is the kind of, of pedantic nerd thing that I just, I just adore. And he didn't have to go on like, you know, for two scenes to explain it. It was just like a few sentences. I, right. I felt like that was perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He takes that opportunity. Um, there's the discussion about why ships explode in different colors. And I kind of found that fascinating myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that it's different atmospheres uh, inside the ships causing Science. it. Yeah, um, because that also sort of, for me, gave a tiny callback for uh, one moment that I thought Lawrence LeJohn did a really good job. Towards the end, when the white stars do sweep in and they're watching through the portal, you see one white star does get taken down. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the resulting yellow explosion and, you know, I saw, to me, it looked like Lawrence LeJohn just sort of like, you know, winced or something like he realized, you know, okay, that's that's mm-hmm. our side. Yep. Um, I, I like that bit very much. The goofiness with the unknown prop... That felt Ellison-esque to me. <laughs> I don't know if that was something specific he mentioned um, or just, I don't know how, if JMS picked it up. But yeah, trying to figure out what the vacuum thing is since it doesn't really vacuum. A maintenance person is going to know what his tool I does. Know. Exactly. I know. I know. 
Um, and we get um, the the nod to the complaints about the white stars looking like plucked chickens, which was a thing yes, online. That made me laugh. That was not just a thing online. JMS, JMS himself hated the design of the white star. He didn't like the look of it, and he didn't. I think I think we may have even been told that directly when uh, Mojo okay. was a guest on our uh, mm-hmm. on our interview episode. Uh, but JMS didn't care for the design. It uh, lent itself poorly to the bridge set design because it's so long and narrow, but also he just didn't like it. He thought Pluck Chicken was his line. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, well, he gets it out of his system here. <laughs> and he's wrong because the White Star is graceful and glorious. Well, I like I I do like too the way that you know Max sort of comes around to it by the end. Like you know I thought you look, look like plucked chickens. Not now they don't. So I wonder <laughs> if you know maybe JMS came around a little bit by that time he had gotten used to it and learned to appreciate the design as well. Who knows? <laughs> uh, and the 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 other thing that uh, amused me as far as like you know sort of fan callback or expansion of the world was the Spoo discussion. <laughs> oh yeah, because we haven't heard about Spoo for a long time. And then we find out that, you know, it's a thing. Uh, it doesn't taste like chicken. Um, whatever it is, humans don't care for it. Yeah, I d- that oh, that was too much for me. I <laughs> just, I mean, I wouldn't have minded them just referencing Spoo because that's, you know, that's a, that's a part of the fabric of the world, which is interesting. It was just so corny. And it, yeah, it was sort of like sometimes JMS is really, really, really good at comedy, but it tends to be when he's not aiming for comedy. And this was just like, you know, aiming for comedy and i was just like what am i watching here (laughs) it actually made me think of that description story i I, chip you read it uh way back when in in dramatic fashion of 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 how spoo is raised and and so forth the herds of Um, sighing spoo yes yeah this felt a lot like that like jms just you know spoo was such a clever thing to him he's got to showcase it which which is which is hilarious (laughs) on a usenet post or when read aloud by a dashing voice actor with hitchhiker's guide music in the background uh (laughs) um, but on screen no it's it hey let's do banter um you Mm -hmm. want banter go see thor ragnarok uh if you're happening to listen to this in real time as we do the recording uh or watch star wars rebels or or watch (laughs) star wars rebels this ain't quite it and yeah. and it's the combination of I think the script's a little clunky in that area in that area, and the actors working too hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Janet Greek back. She's I think she directed another episode so far, season five, if I remember correctly. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, so she is back again for this one. Any thoughts as far as how direction went, or if it was pretty straightforward? It just it felt kind of pedestrian to me, and it mm-hmm. was. It was fine. I thought, like I said, all the sequences with our main characters flowed really well and felt natural. And I just, I don't know, I don't know if the the unnatural performance of the two guest actors, like where you can lay that. Is that something that Janet Greek could have mitigated? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'd kind of like to think so, but maybe, maybe not. Is there anything else that Stephen had to say that you haven't had a chance to share? Um, he, he actually did mention the next gen episode, Lower Decks, and he also mentioned Love and Monsters uh, from Doctor Who, just oh, as how, there we go. How, yeah. how this is not, you know, it's not a new thing to take a look at the, at the show from, from outside of it, but, uh, 
but you know, it wasn't he he didn't feel like, oh, those ones did it better. He was just like, it's 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 similar to them. And he sort mm-hmm. of recognized it. And um but he felt like this is, you know, here we are four eps into the new series, and he felt he feels like it like the show just hasn't quite established what it wants to do in the fifth season or it doesn't seem to him um, mm-hmm. like it has. Like we've we've had it's been telling these sort of random stories and he doesn't feel like there's any sort of a through line at this point. Um, so it just didn't seem like the kind of these are the kind of episodes you would necessarily launch a new season with. And he did wonder if part of that is simply because they weren't really expecting to have the fifth season. And, you know, I wouldn't you just be gotta, surprised. Yeah, yeah, throw something throw something at the wall. He did think that, you know, maybe it would have been interesting to, but, but obviously too difficult to produce, but to go back in time and see a monumental event that we've already seen from the perspective of somebody else. So then you kind mm-hmm. of sidestep the the randomness of the the threat that we have here mm-hmm. um but he was mostly amused about uh about how like you know you think this is going to be a bottle episode we're gonna they're gonna you know save a bunch of money cheap cheap ac- episode with just two guest actors and you know the, the main cast is nope. in it very little but no 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 it's really nope, not we, a bottle episode because we blow our whole see, cg budget <laughs> yeah there's that and we and we get to see you know most of the cast members i mean that the mm-hmm. only ones that don't show are uh lanier and veer and um shoot there was somebody else, but I can't remember at the moment. Uh, Lita. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. else, you know, gets at least a scene. I mean, you know, we get Zach, you know, in full, full combat. That's right. And that mm-hmm. was like the one part I didn't bring it up earlier. Uh, that that was the one point where it started tilting into farce a bit for me. You know, here's oh, these yes, two characters, right. you know, they're peeking up over the crate and, you it's know, horrible. yay. <laughs> well, I mean, yay that Bo was willing to, you know, like, you know, throw a punch and, you know, Mac at least picked he up a gun. and a helmet. He I know. He did not punch a guy. There's no way that would have knocked somebody down. He would have broken his hand. Yeah, that whole scene, I I kind of forgot about it because I blocked it out of my head. I kind of hate that scene. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, I mean, in the end, Stephen just said, I liked it enough. It was cute. uh, But you could probably take this one out of the run and nobody would ever know it was missing. That is very true. For those of you who are watching the first time around and do not wish to know what is coming next, this is your place to step off. Your homework for next time is Learning Curve. And you can come and talk to us about everything up to this point if you are staying spoiler free or uh, if you are fully spoiled and want to talk about the rest of it uh, at b5audioguide.com where our chat threads are divided, uh, spoiler and spoiler free. Uh, We are also on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. Come say hi. And let's uh, go through that jump game. And uh, once again, this is truly a a bottle episode. There's very little, uh, there's plenty of callbacks going back into previous continuity, but there's very little uh, that that plants itself for going forward. I can think of maybe two possibilities, and maybe we'll come up with a couple of more. Um, But um, something, uh, Chip, if you want to talk about it, since you're the one that it leaped out so strongly that you stopped the, the player. Yeah, yeah. I was I, when we were watching this episode, I had to hit pause after Byron talks about telepaths being victims of nature and they didn't ask for this uh, to happen to them. When mm-hmm. he and Lita get together and Lita opens up her mind to him while they're in the process of doing some other things and mm-hmm. and he realizes that telepaths are creations of the Vorlons. He is just going to flip because he's 
everything that he said about that he says in this episode about telepaths being victims of nature. He's going to no. He's got somebody that he can point to over there. Those guys what left the galaxy. <laughs> mm-hmm. They owe telepaths reparations because it it actually it sucks to be a telepath. You may be oh. homo superior, but you are hunted down. People are afraid of you. You will be controlled you will be oppressed, to hell and back. Oppressed, yeah. cor- mm-hmm. controlled, tortured. You know. What he is, what he is saying in this episode is how he and presumably the rest of his non-speaking extras feel. <laughs> but I didn't realize until then what just what exactly how consequential that flip is when he figures out the secret origins of telepathy. Yeah, during that scene, I found myself in my head going, but dude, it wasn't nature. And I guess it didn't even occur to me that, yeah, how would he know that? Like, <laughs> he mm-hmm. doesn't know. Yet. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, I've got to assume that JMS knows what he's doing there with that line. Mm-hmm. I would I think so. Surprised. Yeah. Um, I, I will admit that this was um, his, his scene, especially the, the quoting Hamlet and sort of going on about, um, you know, experiencing uh, what happens at, uh, at, at someone's death. Um, I was beginning, I was wondering if this was the point for some people that the switch got flipped and they started to like, not really like Byron. Cause, cause we know that a lot of people really love to hate Byron. Um, th- this was a point that felt over the top to me at points in his dialogue. Mm, I'm, yeah, I think the the sort of disdain for, for everything, um, definitely sort of pushed in that direction a little bit, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a a flip switching moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I did, I did sort of feel like his, uh, his talking about what happens when a person dies really harkened back to the information, you know, that Lita was telling us and then, you know, heard that Bester was, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, liked to be there uh, at the moment of death too. So like that was, you know, sort of a subtle kind of of moment. And remember that Byron is an ex-psychop. He is an mm-hmm. ex-partner of Bester's. You know, um, he's sharing stuff that we have heard before in relation to characters that we already know um, and have had similar experiences to. So uh, it it all it kind of fits for me. I'm still on the surprisingly okay with Byron mm-hmm. team right now. Yeah, I think uh, overall I am at the moment, too. I just wondered that a a couple of points in that scene were points that made me wonder, hmm, I wonder if this is what began to bother other people. But anyway. Yeah, I think I think his preachiness is Mm -hmm. is really I mean, that that's kind of what bothers me about him in general. And it is maybe it's just like there's a critical mass at some point, like there's not necessarily a moment where where I looked at him and went oh, that was gross. Like, I don't I don't like him now. I think maybe it was just like when when you're a little bit preachy, I can take it. And like it just builds up in your blood like mercury and suddenly I'm crazy. Yeah. But (laughs) but would it be would it be realistic for a character in that position to be less preachy? Uh, and I'm not sure. I mean, he's he's kind of Mm -hmm. that's what he's kind of designed to be. He's he's designed to be a something of a cult figure who's going to turn into a mm-hmm. battle cry in the future. Um, he's going to be kind of full of himself. At the moment, I'm not inclined to blame the character for being that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I mean, we've got, we've got a telepath war coming that we're right. never going to actually see. Uh, mm-hmm. But he is designed to be a difficult character to like. Well, then, mission accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) Something else that um, we get more confirmation on, and I genuinely don't remember at the moment if this is brought more out in the open or if it becomes a conflict point. Um, I think it does. Uh, But we get more substantial uh, evidence that Lockley was uh, on Clark's side in the Earth Civil War. Whether she agreed with him or not, we still don't know. But um, she stayed on what she thought was the right side uh, of the battle. Very next episode. Okay. Thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I didn't remember that either. Yeah. Neither did I. Uh, I had to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that uh, leaped out at me as I was writing up show notes and thinking about all these things, it struck me that, number one, Lockley being so <laughs> almost vicious uh, to Garibaldi about him not asking the questions she needed answers to, um, implying very strongly that he missed stuff. It made me wonder if this was like a seed towards um, him eventually relapsing. It's like, you know, one tiny mm. little pebble here, and then there's maybe a few more there as things where he continues to make mistakes here and there until then the realization that he will never be able to get revenge on Bester just blows it all open. Yeah, he is a guy who's who's usually very good at his job and right. very confident in mm-hmm. his ability to do his job well. So I suppose something like this would definitely feel like a real emotional setback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, and at the moment, it may not feel like that very much, but just, you know, it's just sort of there, just kind of, you know, there in the background and being there for other things to gather to like a magnet slowly. I don't know. Um, and of course, the last thing, you know, we already talked about it before, spoiler space, we never see this threat again. Whoever these bad guys are, they apparently go off and, you know, go attack other planets, just like Lockley planned, and they never see them again. Uh, You know, it should have been the Raiders, but it couldn't be because the Raiders aren't that powerful. Mm -hmm. It should have been the Drock, but it couldn't be because we're waiting on the Drock. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because that was actually, I I didn't remember that it was a one-off race. When we started seeing the initial attacks, I was just like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, oh, is this, you know, the first Drock episode? That was my first thought, because I did not remember that this was an encapsulated threat. Anything else that lends itself to talking about what's coming? I think it's all in the bottle. Yep. Yep, (laughs) I didn't see anything else either. Well, we thank our listeners for sticking with us for the extra five minutes of spoiler space. And and once again, (laughs) it happens sometimes. Uh, Once again, uh, Learning Curve is our next episode where we apparently uh, get a lot more about Lockley's background. Uh, So Stephen will be happier that she's featured more. And not just an occasional. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he did when when she uh, came up at the you know the very beginning. He's like, oh, it's her again. I was wondering if she was going to return to the show. <laughs> it's <just> like, Jesus. <laughs> yes, Stephen. She is in this. She is in this season. <laughs> okay. Um, so once again, uh, learning curve. Next time, thank you very much for listening as we went through a view from the gallery. And until next time, this is Shannon and Durham, Chip and Durham, and Erica and Edmonton. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5.